This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment is, we're comparing two very important key pieces for you. If you're think if you're in debt and you want to take some action and you're not too sure, it's about consolidating with a consumer proposal versus credit counseling. Um, so what's the difference to between consolidating a debt with a consumer proposal or getting in one of those credit counseling programs. Um, consumer proposal or doing, getting into the program two ways of settling debts that don't require you to borrow money, which is probably one of the things that makes the most attractive. Uh, Blair's going to talk about the differences between the two. Um, but can we talk about first, Blair, how similar they are? Because there is some similarities. Oh, definitely, Elaine. So I think focusing there can can make a lot of sense because sometimes people get the remedies confused because they're similar enough to be confusing, but they're so different in some of the really powerful aspects and, you know, even how much they're going to cost you that it's definitely worth understanding how how they're similar and how they are different as well. So in terms of what's common between a consumer proposal and working with a credit counseling plan, so both are debt management options and they're alternatives to consolidation loans and alternatives to filing for personal bankruptcy. So they're meant to save you if the bank won't help you with a consolidation loan or you can't afford it and you're worried about you know um, the worst case scenario if you happen to file for bankruptcy these are your methods to restructure your debts without going into bankruptcy so both consumer proposals and a credit counseling debt management plan are going to help you to consolidate your debts into one settlement without having to borrow any new funds they're going to allow you up to five years to make payments that's the maximum duration and it can certainly be shorter than that They're going to give you some type of education and resources to help build on your money management skills, whether it's budgeting, credit rebuilding, um, all those things. You're going to get some education during the process. Uh, It's not a factor for you to have great credit score or a poor credit score or a long credit history or just a brand new person. You don't need to qualify uh, from a credit score point of view to do either a proposal or to start a a credit counseling debt management plan. Um, And in terms of the credit rating impact, they're remarkably similar. So anytime you restructure your debts and you don't pay them off in full, there's a notation that goes on your credit bureau. And in both a credit counseling plan and a consumer proposal, that typically lasts for two to three years following the completion. Of the program. You're not stopped from seeking new credit during that time, but it means if someone pulls a credit bureau on you, they're going to see that you're in either a credit counseling plan or a consumer proposal for that period of time. Okay. So are there some differences then? Do you do you want to talk about those at this point? Yeah, I think that that's really important. So in terms of what's a huge difference between credit counseling and consumer proposal um, is in a credit counseling plan, when you're working with a credit counselor, it's not administered by a trustee. And anyone that listens to our show, they know for sure a trustee is empowered by the federal government. We can help to reduce debt. We can force creditors to accept the lower amount than what they might like if the other creditors want that, want that settlement. So we've got a lot of extra powers. If you're doing a credit counseling plan, you are paying back 100 percent of the debts that the plan can include and so it can't include all of your debts it can't include government debts like a trustee can help with but in a credit counseling plan you're going to pay back a hundred percent of the debt um, but you're generally going to save on the interest 
So if you owe $20,000, for example, you're going to pay back $20,000, but there won't be any extra interest or fees charged upon that. That contrasts significantly with the consumer proposal, where it's a question of how much can you afford to pay back. So in most cases, people are offering 30 to 50% of the total amount. So in the $20,000 example, you might be offering back $6,000 or $10,000, for example, and that's in full and final settlement of your entire indebtedness. So where they were sounding similar before, okay, both consolidate your debts, both give you, you know, no interest and time to pay off. It's a huge difference in that a consumer proposal can probably save you at least half or maybe two thirds or more of the debt where a credit counseling plan, that's just not an option. You will pay back 100% of the debt, but you'll get a little bit more time to do so and at no interest. So if your interest has already been uh, peaked in terms of your situation, give Sands and Associates a call. It's very easy to do. I'm going to give you the 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030, and set up that first call and see if uh, see if they can give you a hand or at least even trying to figure out your situation and, and the, best, uh, the best step to take next. Um, the other big thing that I found really interesting, I remember when we first started doing this, is that a licensed insolvency trustee is federally regulated by law. You have to follow so many rules and regulations mm-hmm. to be able to do your job versus pretty much everybody else, right? Well, that's right. So, you know, even a credit counselor, again, they might be, you know, very experienced or, or things like that, but there's no formal accreditation that says, you know, suddenly this person can call themselves a credit counselor, for example. Uh, federal law says you can only call yourself a licensed insolvency trustee if you've been granted that license by the government. Otherwise, it's an indictable offense. It's a very serious thing, and you're not going to go around saying you're a trustee when you're not. Uh, and that's the reason for that is, again, just the power that a trustee has um, to essentially bind creditors to a settlement, to give people access to federal law, where everything that a credit counselor does, it's based on an informal agreement with or with individual creditors. So in a credit counseling settlement, as we said, you're going to pay back 100% of the debt. The credit counselor is going to try to negotiate um, the interest freeze with all of your creditors, but there might be some creditors that just opt out. They say, well, no, we're not agreeing to an interest freeze. No, we're not going to agree to back off and not sue this person. You know, by what authority can you force me to accept no interest for the next five years? And the credit counselor says, well, I've got no authority. I'm just trying to, you know, do best efforts to get a good deal here. So there are cases where people are in credit counseling plans and they're still being sued and they're still being collected against. There are certain creditors, government being one for income taxes and for student loans, they will never work with a credit counseling plan. So if that's part of your situation, you're not going to be well served by only sorting out the debts that can be included in in a credit counseling plan uh, versus having to deal with some on your own. There's a huge difference with that with a consumer proposal. So because it's a formal remedy, it's supervised by a trustee, it's based on federal law. Um, first off, we can bind creditors to the state, to the settlement. And what I mean by that is we don't need everybody to agree. So for a consumer proposal to succeed, all we need is 50% by dollar value of the people who are owed money to say yes. And we get that in about 95 to 99% of the cases when we file a consumer proposal. So the example I gave earlier of someone who owes $20,000, as soon as we have $10,001 of that person's debt that say, yes, we will accept a consumer proposal for 30 cents on the dollar, the balance of that debt, the other $9,990 or $99, um, they are forced to accept that same 30 cents on the dollar. 
even if it's the government. They can't opt out. They can't take any action against you. So it's something that all you need is a majority and value that wants to work with you. And you have a consumer proposal that's going to work with all of your debts, uh, including the government debt. So that's just hugely powerful. So the ability to get all the creditors on side, and then again, that ability to reduce the debt to what you can afford. So not 100 cents in the dollar, probably closer, you know, 20 to 40 cents, 30 to 50, something like that. And the reason why a trustee can do that is a trustee shows a comparison to each of the creditors that says, you know, as a federal officer, I've reviewed the entire situation. And if this person were to file for bankruptcy, you creditor are going to get back five or 10 cents on the dollar maximum. And that's the person's option. They could file for bankruptcy and there's nothing to credit can do about it here's the win-win here's the win to you creditors they're going to offer you back 20 or 30 cents on the dollar and the win to the individual is they don't have to file for bankruptcy so a trustee can present those scenarios work with the creditors to get them on side and almost always a proposal gets approved i think one of the other big things is and i'm sure somebody's asking themselves this question okay i get it that it's a bonus to go with a licensed insolvency trustee uh, to deal with my debts and to deal with the the people who are wanting my money or or whatever um the one of the big differences though is how do how do how do they get paid how does a licensed insolvency trustee get paid and how does a, a debt counseling program get paid because there's there's got to be a difference between those two Oh, there definitely is, Elaine. So uh, starting with a credit counseling plan, for example, so you're paying back 100% of the debt. And then sometimes there's a small administration fee or education fee that might be tacked on to that. You know, sometimes it's 25 or $50 a month. It's usually not significant. And some people find, okay, there's good value for that. But where the credit counselor really makes their funds um, is they get a commission from all the creditors who are getting their money paid back. They often pay roughly 22% of a commission back to the credit counseling firm to, you know, thank them for helping them not have to get a collector involved and for getting them all their money back. So you need to realize when you're dealing with a credit counselor, they're actually getting the bulk of their money from the creditors, from the people that are essentially at odds with you. And it's kind of tough to wear that that many hats where you're working on behalf of the creditors getting paid by them, but trying to also do the best for, for the individual in front of you. Because if a credit counselor knows, hey, this person would be better served by a consumer proposal than a debt management plan, I'd like to hope they would refer that person to a credit uh, to a, a consumer proposal but they would make no money at that point. So the kind of the, the motivation can be at odds there to what's better for the client. When you're dealing with a trustee with a consumer proposal, you pay nothing above and beyond what you can afford to repay on the debt. So again, if it was a $20,000 debt and you're offering $6,000 back as a settlement at roughly 30%, and you'd pay that at $100 a month over 60 months or 150 over 40 months, whatever works, that's all that you pay. The cost of administration are all set by the federal government, and they're deducted from your payments before the creditors get their share. So of the $6,000 that you're paying in, creditors will get the lion's share of that, you know, close to 80% or so. The balance goes for government fees, trustee fees, council and so on and so forth. But to you, the individual, you will never get a bill from a trustee. You'll never get a bill for a consultation, for a call. If you have a question, if we have to help stop a wage seizure or a garnishment, everything is included in the cost you pay with the proposal. And if I can just make one more point on fees, uh, it's nothing that you ever need to pay up front. So if you're doing a proposal at $100 or $150 a month, you just start making that payment after the trustee has put the proposal together, spent a bunch of time with you. Um, you never have to pay an invoice upfront or any large upfront fees. You just start making your proposal payments once you file the documents. Cool. 
Now we've got about a minute and a half left in this segment, Blair. Can we can we talk about the things or the considerations you suggest people keep in mind when they're weighing their options at looking at both of these? Because it's a really terrific list for folks to really think about before they make that decision. Yeah, I think it's good to, to finish here, Elaine. You know, first off, the big question, what can you afford? You know, can you afford to repay 100% of your debt? Uh, if the interest was stopped, is that the solution that you need? Okay, if so, credit counseling might be an appealing option. Uh, most of the people that I deal with, they're in my office because they can't afford to repay 100% of the debt, even if the interest was stopped. Or if they could afford to repay 100%, it's that significant hardship to themselves and to their family. Um, so if you can afford to repay 100%, okay, maybe that's a reason to consider a, a credit counseling plan. But if you can more afford to pay 30 to 50, 20 to 40%, something in that range, a consumer proposal is definitely an option worth exploring every time. And if it's the case there's any government debt at all involved or any legal actions taken against you if wages are being seized or you're being threatened to be garnished, that's when you absolutely need the protection of a consumer proposal administered through a licensed insolvency trustee. And it might just take an hour to figure this out, to get started, to become debt-free. Can you imagine just an hour? And very easy to do. Connecting with the professionals at Sands & Associates, you can book your free non-judgmental consultation. I'll give you the phone number one more time. It's 1-800-661-3030. Or check out the website, sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So debt solution questions, the, the, ones, the questions that get asked all the time, and maybe some that people would like to ask Blair but are a little afraid to. I think this is going to be a great segment. Uh, as, as everybody kind of gets a bit of an insight into what others are thinking, especially if you're sitting on the fence and, and not too sure what next step would be, I think this is going to be great to answer uh, to assist those people who are maybe not sure about taking that next step and giving you a call. What do you think? Oh, I totally agree, Elaine. And, you know, having a debt problem is one of those things where you often feel like you're the only person on earth that's, you know, um, let yourself get into this situation or is facing the collection calls or has more debt than they're comfortable with. Um, and I think anyone that's listened to our show or if it's your first time just needs to realize, you know, uh, debt's become a fact of life uh, for a lot of folks. Um, you know, oftentimes the reasons why someone got into debt have very little to do with bad financial decisions. They have a lot to do with the circumstances of life if something just happened to them, but even if it's completely out of your control, you can still feel alone, feel like you're the only person going through it. So for today, we're going to talk about a lot of questions we're commonly asked, and you know, hopefully some of them will resonate for some of our listeners who might be having you know, a couple of debt questions of their own or have someone in their friends or family or extended network um, who is having some challenges. Now, I know that you don't have them numbered like the number one question, the number 10 question, but this sounds like it's probably the one that get, gets asked the most, uh, the best way to handle or settle credit card debts. Yeah, that one, there's very few people that we see that don't have some element of credit card debt in their overall debt picture. You know, there might be the odd person who has just an ICBC accident or just some really bad tax issues, but just about anybody else, credit card debt is pretty well the mainstay of what most people have, uh, and it can be some of the easiest debt to incur. Um, you know, it's quite easy to get approved for 
credit card, even a first credit card, uh, if you're just coming of age or as a recent immigrant, you know, a lot of banks will want to take a risk of giving you that first credit card. And then once you have that, it's not too tough to get a second, a third, or so on and so forth. And the challenge is, you know, it's pretty easy to get approved, but then once you start carrying a balance, the debt can really run away from you. So most credit cards are in the range of 20 to 30% of interest per year, um, which is, you know, just that interest rate on its own, if you did nothing, uh, your debts are going to double every about three years or so. Um, so it can be really something that, you know, you look at your statements one year and things seem, okay, I'm just, you know, making minimums, I'm, I'm going to be able to pay this off. And then a couple of years down the road, you just realize all you're doing is servicing interest. So in right. terms of the best way to settle credit card debts, uh, one way that people aren't too aware of is to do what's called a consumer proposal. And the way a consumer proposal works um, is it consolidates virtually all the types of debt that you have. So, you know, including any income taxes or things like that, but definitely your credit card debt and even any payday loans. Um, and it allows you to make monthly payments to pay off what you're able to afford to pay off. So for most people, that might be in the range of, you know, 30, 40% of the debt, something in that ballpark, uh, but it stops all the interest. So the debt stops running away from you. And then you get a monthly payment you can afford to actually clear the balance back down um, and you don't need to file for bankruptcy. So it's a better option typically um, than a lot of people will find if they're just trying to make minimum payments on their credit card. The balance doesn't go down because the interest continues to accumulate. Um, but if they're doing a consumer proposal, uh, they get the balance reduced and then they just have to pay off that reduced amount. Nothing keeps getting added to it each month. So it can be pretty life-changing from the perspective of having some hope and optimism of actually getting out of debt. Now, something that we both know is that what might work for one person doesn't necessarily work for another. So what's first steps there for someone? Well, you know, you want to look at all of your options. And, you know, other than a consumer proposal, uh, there could be an option called debt settlement. If you start to look online, you look at debt settlement. You know, sometimes that can seem attractive and a debt settlement can sound a lot like a consumer proposal in that, you know, you're paying off a reduced amount on the debt. But the issue with debt settlement, and that's why people, you know, start out looking at your options, but, you know, sometimes they can get discounted pretty quickly, is if you're doing what's called debt settlement, you have to have the money up front to pay off a reduced balance. So you might say, you know, you owe $10,000 on your credit card. Okay, well, I'll pay you $4,000, but I'll give it to you tomorrow. That's how debt settlement would work. Uh, what happens with my clients quite a bit, they say, well, if I had $4,000 kicking around, I probably wouldn't be phoning you. I'd, I'd be fine at this point. Um, so debt settlement is something that can sound attractive, but you really need to have that lump sum of money available um, to actually pay off the debt. And that's a big difference with a consumer proposal where you don't need the lump sum of money up front. Uh, you know, another big difference um, is that under a consumer proposal, you get legal protection. So if somebody is calling you, harassing you, threatening to take you to court, or has even started legal proceedings against you, all that gets ground to a halt when you sit down with a trustee uh, and file a consumer proposal. And, you know, the idea is that what's best for one person might not be best for every person. So it really starts uh, with a conversation with a professional, uh, a licensed insolvency trustee, especially at Sands and Associates. We're not going to judge you. We're not here to make you feel bad about a situation you probably already don't feel great about. We're going to listen to your situation, and then we're going to give you some advice on all of the legal options that are available to you. And, you know, if you've got a lump sum of money, okay, we'll talk. Okay, that settlement could be an option. But for the most part, people just find, oh, I did didn't even know about a consumer proposal, and it can be so powerful to restructure all of their debt. What about um, owing government or having government debts? How does one handle that? 
Yeah, that's another main question that we get. Um, and sometimes it comes with a little bit of an implicit assumption that, my gosh, there's nothing you can do when you owe the government money. You know, you hear it a lot. You know, even in, in conversations I'm having, people will say, oh, you're, you're a licensed insolvency trustee. I guess it must, you know, really be tough that you can't help people with tax debt. And I'm like, well, here's a chance to educate. Uh, when you owe the government money, um, there's a few ways that you can restructure the debt. You know, first off, you can try to negotiate directly with the government, but the best that you're tipping you're going to be able to achieve is they'll say, okay, we're going to keep charging you interest, but how about you pay us off in full in six months as opposed to tomorrow? That's usually the best result that you're going to get. Um, and government debt could include things like income taxes, uh, student loans, MSP, or even in BC, ICBC uh, balances. You know, if you were in an accident and then denied coverage, you know, that balance can be so significant. Uh, but the good news is that there are two options that are available that can help you deal with any type of government debt. Um, so one is the consumer proposal that we've just talked about. Uh, that can cut down government debts exactly the same way that it cuts down credit cards, lines of credit, um, anything else like that. And what's really powerful also uh, with a consumer proposal is two things. You know, one um, is it's the only method that you can use to actually reduce government debt. Um, so, you know, they're not going to make a deal with you to accept 30 to 50% of the balance. But if you do it with a consumer proposal, quite often they will make a deal. And the other aspect is it's also the case if you owe a number of people money and government debt is just one portion of that, all you need to get a consumer proposal approved is 50% by dollar value of the people that you owe money to to say yes. So if you owed the government $10,000, but you owed Visa and MasterCard $11,000, for example, as long as Visa and MasterCard said yes to your proposal, it wouldn't matter if the government wanted more money or didn't want to participate in the proposal. They're automatically bound to be part of that proposal because it's been accepted by the majority of creditors. So it can be a really powerful option uh, to help with government debt. So that's one way to deal with government debt. Um, the other way uh, is to consider filing for a personal bankruptcy. And again, this is a last resort, so you want to exhaust that if a proposal won't work for you. But oftentimes I have people come in, they might have a, had a tax debt for just years and years, they're just not able to pay it off, or there might have been an ICBC accident where literally it's a hundred or $200,000 is their liability that's been assessed. You know, in those cases, based on income, even paying off, you know, 20 or 30% of the balance might not be possible. So when you file for bankruptcy, Bankruptcy, bankruptcy serves to get you back to zero, to owing nobody anything. And there are very few debts that can't be included in a bankruptcy, you know, things like child support, spousal support, but typical government debts can be included if you file for a personal bankruptcy. So if you have that misconception, you can go bankrupt on everything else, but you can't go bankrupt on the government. Well, let's dispel that right away. You absolutely can uh, deal with government debt uh, through a personal bankruptcy proceeding. I just want to throw in here, too, that uh, it's really important for folks to realize or know, possibly for the first time, that only a licensed insolvency trustee can help you set up and navigate through a personal bankruptcy. That's why it's so important to be, one, listening to this segment, which is a great one, but also call Sands & Associates if you want that, if you want that assistance, even as a first step, just to talk to somebody about it. And I'll give you the phone number. It's one 800 661 or you can visit the website as well at sands-trustee.com. Now, I know, Blair, that we've talked about all kinds of myths and misconceptions around personal bankruptcy. Can you share a couple of questions related or, or the ones that get asked all the time about bankruptcy when you're talking to folks? 
Yeah, you know, a lot of times people are wondering, well, what happens with my assets if I file for bankruptcy? You know, a lot of people think you file for bankruptcy, that means you're losing everything. The trustee shows up at your house, starts carting off your furniture, uh, you know, puts a red tag on your door to let everybody know that you've been bankrupt. Uh, None of that is true. So for the vast majority of personal bankruptcy filings, really nothing happens to your assets. Uh, The reason for that is the philosophy of a bankruptcy is to get you back to the point where you can be a productive member of society, um, you can start a business, you can work and get your wages, um, and it wouldn't serve anybody if you're literally taking everybody's, you know, means of supporting themselves, you know, furniture to sit on, tools of trade uh, to earn income from. So there's provincial legislation, and it varies a little bit province to province, uh, but in BC there includes some exemptions, which means if you file for bankruptcy, you're able to keep these assets for things like equity in a vehicle. So if you have a vehicle, uh, whether there's a loan against it or not, there's a certain value you're allowed to have. It's up to $5,000 in the province of BC. So if you file for bankruptcy and your car is worth less than that, uh, or your equity in that vehicle after you deduct the loan is less than that, nothing happens to your vehicle. You just keep either making the payments or you just hold on to the vehicle. You don't have to sell it. Uh, There's an exemption for equity in your home, which most people don't know. They think that automatically, if you file for bankruptcy, well, you're going to lose your home. Absolutely not true. It's actually been a couple of years now um, since I've been involved in a bankruptcy where we've had to sell somebody's home. And the reason for that is for every person that's on title, so if it's a husband and wife, it's multiplied by two, uh, you're allowed up to $12,000 of equity after we deduct real estate commissions and legal costs of a hypothetical sale. So for most people, they've got a house where the mortgage is almost similar to what the house is worth, or maybe they've taken out some lines of credit against the value of the house. Um, so if you go into bankruptcy, as long as you don't have you know tons and tons of equity, um, you're going to be able to retain that home. And usually, if you did have tons and tons of equity, you would have already tried to refinance the pay off the debts. Uh, there's an exemption for RRSPs. So if you're putting money to save for retirement, the worst thing you can do is to pull that money out to pay your debts because you're going to get hit with a tax bill and then you're not going to have that money available when you actually need it. And it's something that even if you were sued for debts, uh, it could never be taken from you. So there's a real large number of items, things like your household furniture, your clothing, your medical aids. Uh, We talked about tools of the trades. So the vast majority of cases, people generally don't lose any assets if they go through a bankruptcy but they are able to be discharged from their debt. Such a great uh, uh, resource for people. Check out the website, sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, this is a great segment. It's it's the personal debt checkup. What to look for if you're going to do that work. And I like this part, Blair, what to ignore, because, again, that speaks to all the information that people get these days. Some of it's true. Some of it's not so true. So ready for that financial check-in. What are the, some of the key factors um, to help people figure out where they stand when it comes to personal debt and, and maybe some stuff that they can ignore? Can you, can you start talking mm-hmm. from the beginning of that piece, Blair? I know yeah, it's sort I, of convoluted. Think, <laughs> oh, no, no, of course. So I think it's just, just a matter of, Elena, you know, just like you, you wouldn't want to go too long without checking in with your dentist, with your doctor, uh, without maintaining your car, for example. You know, it's the old saying, if you don't have a plan, 
any way is going to get you there. So the idea of looking at your finances with, you know, a bit of a defined eye to where do you want to go? Uh, what are your financial goals? And if debt is holding you back, how do you deal with that debt so that you can move forward? Because the easiest thing is just going to keep doing what you're doing, keep making minimum payments if you can afford them and paying a ton of interest at the end of the day. So doing a financial checkup, you know, it's a best practice. It's something we recommend, you know, at least annually and, you know, maybe even more often than that, especially if things are changing. And there's a few components to it. So, um, you know, the first thing that we recommend, and this is, I think, critical to do, is to check your credit history. Um, so we recommend, you know, about once a year, but it, quite often people will go years on end without checking their credit history because they think, it's, you know, it's a bit of a chore or it costs money uh, or it's just a hassle. Uh, but this is so important because you need to make sure um, that your credit history is actually accurate, that it reflects your accounts, uh, that someone else's information hasn't been, um, you know, mixed in there. Uh, there's not something delinquent that's going on that you're not aware of, that when you actually need to have good credit, maybe it's for a mortgage or a car loan, you know, cleaning up your credit at that point is going to be much much more difficult to do. And it's usually something that you can't do on a dime. It takes a while for them to investigate, see what went on and then get your credit history, um, you know, cleaned up back to where it should be. So the way that you do that is there's two main credit bureaus in Canada. They're called Equifax and TransUnion. Uh, you might recognize Equifax from the massive data breach of, you know, about a year ago or so. Uh, <laughs> but it, it's a bit of a testament to just how much information these bureaus do have on you. So everything from, you know, past employers, past addresses. And then for every account that you have, there's going to be a report that's going to say, what's your history? So how often are you late on payments the last 30, 60, 90 days? Have there been collection actions taken against you? Has the account been sold off to a collection agency or things like that? So it's really important to go through that. It can be you know, a little convoluted to read, but they give you a bit of a legend at the top saying, here's what all the codes mean. Uh, and then it's something you can also phone a trustee, um, just say, okay, I've got my credit report. Can you spend a few minutes just helping me understand it? It's something we would do at no charge. Uh, but you definitely want to do that. Now, in terms of getting your credit report, there's a few ways you can do it. So prior to the pandemic, if you wanted to get your credit report online, you had to pay a fee. Sometimes it was between 15 to $30 or so. You'd get it instantly. Uh, and no, not too much hassle, but you paid some money. You were always able to send away for a free copy of your credit report uh, at least once a year. And we've got a copy of the document you can send away on our website at sans-trustee.com. Uh, but what's also happened during the pandemic is both Equifax and TransUnion have started to get give some a little bit limited, but usually enough for you to go on uh, access to your credit reports for free online. So if you go to their website, uh, TransUnion calls it a consumer disclosure, and it's going to have, you know, lists of your accounts, the history. So, you know, that's a really good quick checkup to do is just to log into one of the credit bureau um, sites and access your credit report online just to make sure that it is accurate. And I recommend people keep hard copies of these, keep them filed, track them over time, um, again, just to make sure it's accurate and that you're trending in a good direction, not delinquent on your accounts. Because sometimes they're not accurate. Is that right? Oh, that's right. Almost every time uh, when I pull my credit report, I do find there's some inaccuracies on there. And, you know, I don't think I have the most common name in the world, but uh, you can imagine someone like a John Smith, for example. Uh, there's so many millions of people with, you know, similar names, similar uh, transactions that it's just not uncommon that people uh, could have bad information put in just inadvertently. Okay. Well, that's the credit. Your credit history is important to check. What about your credit score? How does that fit in? Yeah, so of all the things you can ignore, this is top of the list. So, uh, you know, this is something you generally won't be able to get for free. They're going to charge you a fee to get your credit score, but it's actually pretty meaningless for the most part um, because the method that the credit bureaus use 
to calculate your credit score. It's just their best guess of what they think a lender is going to use. Each lender has their own method of calculating a credit score. So if you're sitting down at bank A versus bank B, your score might be dramatically different based on the exact same inputs, just based on how the banks choose to calculate a credit score. So, you know, if you want bragging rights, okay, you could say, well, you know, mine's seven or 800 and that's great, or yours five or 600, that's not great. But at the end of the day, it's really not something that you can rely on. And you couldn't take it to the bank and say, well, you know, your acceptance requires this and I've got it. Therefore, you must approve me. They're going to calculate their own credit score. um, And, you know, essentially, uh, they're going to base their decision on that. But what's also important is you need to understand that a credit score can be completely divorced from your overall financial health. So for someone who's got a great credit score, they make all their minimum monthly payments, they keep their accounts in good standing, but they could never afford to pay off all of their debts, they still might have a great credit score. Uh, You know, somebody who's just finished a bankruptcy, they might have a pretty poor credit score, but they've actually got no debt. So they're not having any obligations on their monthly expenses each month. um, And then they're going to be able to rebuild to save money. They might be in actually a better position. And where it's really stark is if you think of somebody who just has no need for credit, they've got a bunch of money, they're independently wealthy, something like that. They might have a terrible credit score because they're just not borrowing from the banks each month. So the banks, therefore, don't know what to feed into the algorithm to actually get them to calculate a credit score. So it ends up to be very low. So you need to realize it's not a barometer of your overall financial health. Sometimes it can be completely opposite to the people with the highest credit scores might actually be in some of the worst financial shape overall. Got it. Okay. I guess if you looked at your um, sort of your debt to income compared those, that ratio that exists that uh, I have, I have to be honest, I've never really spent a lot of time doing, but I know it's, I know it's important or it can be really good for you to figure things out as well. Yeah, exactly. So you do want to take a look at yourself, you know, as if you were looking at at a business, for example, you know, of all the money that comes in each month, you know, how much is left at the end of the month, you know, to meet all the obligations. So for your personal debt to income ratio, you know, a little bit straightforward, I think, is take your gross before tax monthly income, um, add up all of your debt payments plus your rent mortgage payment or child support, things like that, your main debt obligations, and then divide the amounts by your gross income and multiply by 100. So what that's going to show you is if your rent is, you know, 60% of your gross income, and then you've got some credit card payments and student loans and car payments on top of that, you're in a pretty precarious financial situation. Uh, A best practice is that your gross debt score uh, so your debt to income ratio should be in the range of 35 to 40 percent of your gross monthly income. Um, so if you do the math and that's what it works out to be, OK, you're generally that's a good indicator of financial health. You know, there may be other factors, but that's pretty good. But it's when you start to see um, debt to income ratios that are you know, 80, 90 percent or even over 100 percent. What that shows is the only way that you're sustaining yourself is by going further and further into debt each month. And that's just not sustainable. Eventually, you're going to run out of room on the credit cards. You're going to be in incredibly stressed out and the interest is going to take on a life of its own. So it's a good calculation to do. Take your gross income and then figure out what proportion of that is going to your debt uh, plus your, your rent each month. Got it. I would think that during this time that we're all living through, that uh, that debt to income ratio could really be fluctuating badly for a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially if your income's just been reduced for a few months, you know it's coming back. Okay, it's indicative for a few months. You want to you know tighten things down, but you know it's going to be better. Um, you know, if your income has been down permanently and now your debt to income ratio is way out of whack, that's just a big indication you should get some help. 
Yeah. And we've only got about, oh, about 40, 45 seconds left, Blair. What else do you want mm-hmm. to throw in for people to think about? I think, you know, one thing to, to keep in mind is to really to not get in the habit of robbing Peter to pay Paul. So I've had some clients, you know, call it financial Tetris. They take money from one card, pay off a minimum on another. That keeps it going for another month. Um, it's just not going to solve anything in the long term. So if you're using credit to pay credit, a huge warning sign, pay attention to uh, and get some help to move forward. And the best place to get help, uh, obviously, Sands and Associates, because Sands and Associates has been helping folks in British Columbia get a financial fresh start for over 30 years. So it's a great place to start, and it's very easy to do. Check the website, sands-trustee.com, or you can give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. Book your free confidential debt consultation with someone who's incredibly knowledgeable about debt and get you onto that path to becoming debt-free. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So government debt, man, that can be a whole bunch of different things, but that's got to be the number one concern, whether you're a business owner or it's just your personal debt and you've, you haven't paid income taxes or student loans or you're behind on those things. This is such a great segment because Blair's going to break down ways that you can manage your government debts, debts and even stop somebody from garnishing your wages, which, boy, oh boy, these days, any day, but especially these days, would be really, really challenging to have to deal with. So let's talk about some of the different types of government debt first um, that you come across, Blair, when you've got people in your office and they're talking about their situation. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, you know, you hit, you said it well, Elaine, that a lot of people are very scared when they owe the government money. It becomes, you know, right front forefront of their mind because the government's the most powerful creditor that's out there. They don't need to take you to court before they can take really significant actions that can impact you. So if people get behind on payments to the government, uh, they get very scared, very anxious, wondering, you know, when the next shoe is going to drop, what's going to happen to them next. And there's a number of ways these types of debts can arise. So what we typically see is a few broad categories. So first off, a big one of tax debt, and that can include a bunch of things. You know, sometimes it's personal income taxes. So maybe the person was self-employed or pulled out some RRSPs and, you know, just didn't pay enough tax back. And then when they file their taxes, they get an assessment that says, oh, well, now you owe this amount of money that wasn't paid during the year. Uh, GST debt from a business is something that we see a lot of as well. Even if you haven't registered for GST, if you've tripped over the $30,000 revenue category and definitely get your own advice on this, uh, you could be assessed a GST debt, even if you've never collected it. Most often people have been collecting GST, but then there's been a tough time in the business and they've had to use those funds for operations rather than remit them to the government. Uh, Sometimes there are payroll remittances, so source deductions that should have been withheld from employees. Um, They weren't remitted to the government, and that becomes a debt. Uh, Sometimes things like student loans, whether it's national or provincial student loans, uh, it could be an overpayment of benefits. Um, So definitely uh, relevant right now is CERB. So we're hearing from a lot of people, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, they were perhaps overpaid or not eligible. um, And now they're starting to get some notices. Well, hey, we're assessing you that needs to be paid back. 
Um, ICBC debt, obviously near and dear to us in BC, our public insurer, um, that can be a type of government debt um, that can be very difficult to deal with outside of seeing a trustee. And then finally, MSP premiums. So even though medical services plan haven't had to pay premiums for quite some time now over the last couple of years, if there's a previous debt, that still is due and payable and can come back to haunt you here. Wow, that's a lot to consider. And it really, um, most of these touch everybody except for maybe a student loan, but uh, something to consider. Some really important pieces of government debt that you need to pay attention to. So what if what happens then if, if you end up in a situation where you can't keep up the repayment obligations on these types of debts? Well, the government's got a number of things they can they can do, and sometimes they'll employ a few of these tactics or just one. But first off, interest and penalties. Um, so even what seems like a manageable balance to CRA, that can grow over time uh, with interest that compounds daily and penalties, especially if you're late on filing or things like that. Uh, what CRA can do in addition to interest and penalties is freeze your bank account. And if you want to talk about getting your attention, well, suddenly when you go to pay your rent or pay an online bill and you find you can't access your funds, you know, the funds are still there, but you won't be able to use them if CRA has frozen the account. Um, CRA often does that as kind of a shot across the bow saying, you know, you need to file these tax returns. We're going to unfreeze your account once it shows that you've done these. But sometimes they will also seize the balance of that account if it's a case the debt is so significant. And that can happen with no warning to you and can be, you know, absolutely shocking and can really um, derail your financial plan. Um, in addition to just seizing bank accounts, um, CRA can seize assets. So where this most commonly happens is they can place a charge or a lien on your residence or on some other property that you might have. And then once that lien is registered, it's like you've got another mortgage there. So if you sell your house, uh, your mortgage holder gets paid out and then CRA to the value of their lien also gets paid out before you see any money. Uh, And the last thing that they do, and again, talk about being dramatic, is they can garnish your wages. So generally, CRA can take 30 to 50 percent of your wages in the province of B.C. I've seen them go as high as 100 percent, even on pension amounts. Uh, if a person is, you know, extremely non-compliant and they really want, you know, to teach them a lesson, so to speak. But you can imagine having your income cut off at the source. That could just be debilitating right away. So we're going to talk about the next best step to take. But first, I just want to throw in, if you want to take some action now, give Sands & Associates, you can do it two ways, either give them a call, 1-800-661-3030, of course, depending on when you're listening to this. Uh, The second is go to their website, sands-trustee.com. It's filled with good information, and it's also a way for you to access an office and make an appointment and get set up. So let's talk about the two options of, of what you can do or who you can talk to to take Take this kind of debt on and and resolve it. Yeah, and just before we get to that, Elaine, there's one sure. tip I just want to highlight for folks here because I've definitely seen people do something that they thought was working to their best efforts or to their best outcome, and it ends up coming back to, to haunt them. So one really big pitfall to avoid is don't transfer assets out of your okay. name. So if you've got a debt to CRA and you say, well, I've got these assets, I don't want CRA to come after them, I'm going to put them in my spouse, uh, parent, child, grandparent, whichever, someone else's name, just be aware CRA can undo all of those transfers, they can pursue the person you've given the assets to, and you can really enlarge the problem at that point. So don't go rearranging things to try to outsmart CRA, uh, they will win in the end if, if you think you can outsmart them. So just wanted to give that warning there. Yeah, no, that's good. Thanks for including that. So what's the option, uh, like a consumer proposal, which we often talk about, is that the best option in this situation? 
Well, there's two options, and both of them are accessible through a licensed insolvency trustee. And kind of the, the benefit of a consultation is figuring out which option is going to fit best for your situation. But a consumer proposal can be a great option if you've got an amount owing to the government. You can afford to pay off a reasonable portion of it, you know, maybe 30 to 50 percent of it over time. But you can't handle being garnished. You can't handle your wages being seized. Uh, and you just need that time. You can't come up with the money up front. A consumer proposal can be just a lifesaver. Because once you're in a consumer proposal, if anything's been done against you, it has to stop. So if your wages are getting seized, the day you sign that proposal, the trustee's going to put a stop to that wage seizure. If CRA is threatening to put a charge against your house, the day you sign that consumer proposal, CRA can no longer put a charge against your house. So if it's a situation where you can pay off a reduced balance, the proposal can be just a lifesaver. If it's the case, you've been assessed just a massive amount of debt and your income is nowhere near going to allow you to pay pay off, you know, even a quarter of the debt over time, well, then a personal bankruptcy can be the option that's going to get you back to zero um, at a reasonable cost and a reasonable time frame. For 80% of people in Canada, bankruptcy runs just for a nine-month period, um, and any amounts owing to the government are typically dischargeable in a bankruptcy, which means they go away. When you finish the bankruptcy, you don't owe the government any money, and it's amazing how many people think, I file bankruptcy if I have tax debt, I Bankruptcy deals with the credit cards, deals with the lines of credit, but the tax that comes out the other side, that's not the case in Canada. Both a consumer proposal and a personal bankruptcy fully deal with tax debt. And I just want to include, too, that the, the beauty of going to see somebody like Blair at a li- uh, as a licensed insolvency trustee is that they'll work with you to figure out, is it consumer proposal or is it bankruptcy? Because they're, because those two options are two options that only a licensed insolvency trustee can actually facilitate for you in this country. Yeah, and it doesn't take long, Elaine. It's inside of the first consultation. Anyone that we meet with, by the end of the meeting, we're giving them a very clear, you know, even on a spreadsheet saying, you know, here's the impact, here's the financial structure of a bankruptcy, here's what a consumer proposal could look like, the benefits, how you would take your next steps, and that people have a really clear decision they can make on how they want to proceed. Uh, And getting a proposal together can be done in a matter of a few days if it's urgent. People can take weeks, you know, to do all their research. But if your wages are being taken tomorrow, uh, we could probably have a proposal already very quickly if that's what you needed. Nice. And there's, yeah, so many benefits to going to uh, checking in with Sands and Associates and talking to them about your situation. Uh, You're listening to Dollars and Cents. If you want to go to their website, sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030. See you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.